This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So dealing with collection agents, pretty stressful. I mean, I've never had the opportunity to do that, but I can't imagine how stressful it must be. But there's got to be some really important things that people can think about, possibly while they're in the throes of it or before that happens and what they can do. Yeah, so absolutely, Elaine. Um, you know, without a doubt, collection agencies are probably the biggest referral source I have in, in my business at Sands & Associates because it's generally one of these calls or a series of these calls. They'll raise people's stress levels, you know, through the roof. They'll raise blood pressure, you know, cause psychological issues, physical issues. You know, it's not fun to owe people money, but it's doubly not fun when you've got somebody on the phone who's, you know, very well trained in how to talk down to you, how to make you feel small, how to threaten things that, you know, for the vast majority of cases, they will never ever follow through on. So for today's segment, I gave it a little subtitle called Breathing Lessons. The whole idea is if you get that collection call and you're starting to breathe, you know, shallowly and you just can't breathe, listen to today's segment. We're going to give you a little bit of peace of mind here that, you know, for the most part, it's all talk, no action with many collectors. So how does a collection agency even get involved with me? How do they find me? Why are they harassing me? Yeah, well, it's it's never when you're up to date on your debts, you know, unless there's been some mistake. But, you know, typically if you're up to date on your debts, you know, the bank really cares about you as a customer. They care about your client relationship. Uh, they care about your experience. And if you get, you know, one or two payments behind, the bank's going to be very nice and friendly with you. They're going to, you know, try to work with you and say, you know, we really value your business and we want to get you back on track here. Now, once you get to three months of delinquency, it's really funny because it's like you flick a, flick a switch at the bank there. Suddenly, they don't care about you as a client anymore. And they get the heavy hitters involved, which is when they start to call in collection agencies. So normally after three months of delinquency. And is that there? Is that a, a typical of, of all banks that they have a three-month window and then after that? All bets are off, and they're it's getting outside typical. help. Yeah, okay. I've seen anecdotally. You know, sometimes it's quicker than three months. Sometimes someone's very surprised. You know, I've owed the bank money for a long time, and I haven't heard from a collector. Well, you know, sometimes it's just they can't find you. But sure. you know, typically it's after about three months that they start to get a collector involved. Okay. And now what you got to realize is that there's a cycle here, and so it's generally it's not going to be just one collector that you're going to deal with for the whole time, unless you pay up right away to that collector. You know, typically it's going to be every two to three months if you haven't made good on this debt. Um, the collector is going to start with a barrage of emails, of letters, of phone calls. Um, they're going to start to make contact with you. Um, and then if they're not successful with you over about a two or three month period, they're going to give up and things will go silent and you'll think maybe you're in the clear again. But then it's going to start again with a new company probably the next month. Okay. And what's happening there is the bank is essentially selling your debt or you know renting out your debt or whatever, basically giving a contract to collect the debt to one collector and saying, if you don't collect this debt, give it back to me in a month or two because I'm going to get someone else involved. And they'll do that progressively for years, potentially. Wow. And, you know, sometimes it'll be a bit of a race to the bottom on collectors where the first people that they assign you to, you know, they're respectful, they're nice, they want to work with you. By the time you're at the fifth or sixth time you've been assigned, it might be a collection agency where there are 
100% based on commission, and the person on the other side of the line might be in about, about as bad of a financial situation as you are, and this is how they're trying to feed their family. Got it. So I've got some collection agents as my clients, and they're not bad people. They're just people trying to do a very difficult job. Um, but the thing that you know they really prey on is them having all of the information about what they can do, and you having none of the information and believing everything you know just as carte blanche. Right. Even if they're telling you awful things, you know, the an average person would go, "Oh, that you can't really do that." But it's still very, very frightening. Yeah. Now there is some there. I don't know if it's good news, but there is something that uh, you can kind of hang on to. Yeah, this is the about collection agencies. The, the biggest secret in the collection agency industry, biggest secret people don't know, is in general, all talk, no action. And what I mean by that is if 10,000 people owe money, 10,000 people are going to get every threat of legal action. They're going to say, we're going to take you to court, we're going to sue you, we're going to seize your wages, we're going to take your house, throw you out in the street, all those things, whether they'll put it in writing or over the phone, they will threaten that. But out of those 10,000 people, one will get sued. Okay. One in 10,000. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow, that's not a very good return if you're a collection agency. Well, it, it's a good return if you can intimidate those other 9,999 right. to do what you want them to do, do the, with, yeah. without you having to sue them. Exactly. Right? D- yeah, if they do what you want them to do. Yeah, and, and the reasons for it, it really comes down, if you think it through logically, is it's not worth their while for the vast majority of cases to actually sue you. Because uh, it you does know, cost money to sue money. somebody. It's a long, convoluted process. So if we just go through it at a high level, so you owe somebody money, they try to collect from you, if they want to take you to court, they've got to find you first off, they've got to serve you with documents, that costs some money. They've got to hire a lawyer, or they've got to write up a statement of claim, that costs some money. They've got to show up in court, you know, maybe you'll show up or you won't, but either way they'll, they'll probably get a judgment. But all of those cases there, all those steps, probably have taken them the low single digit thousands, if not more. If you owe somebody $5,000, they're not going to invest $10,000 to try to collect from you, it's just not going to happen. And even if you owe somebody a lot of money, and this is all the big banks as well, uh, even if you owe the big banks a lot of money, they'll still be leery to do a lawsuit against you unless they're sure that on the other side there's actually going to be something there. And what I mean by that is if you get sued, you know, they get a judgment against you, they've won the lawsuit, you owe this money, um, what are they going to do next? Yeah. If you don't have any assets, meaning if you don't have a house with no mortgage, if you've got a house that's already got a mortgage and you don't have much equity, well, they're not going to get any money there. Yeah. If you've got the same job you've been working at for 30 years and it's for the government, well, maybe you'd get sued because they're going to try to take your wages, but that's a very small percentage of people. A lot of people are self-employed or they move jobs. So creditors know even if they pursue you and take you to court, um, get a judgment against you, they may not be able to enforce that judgment at all. Okay, so I get the call from the collection agency. I know I owe money, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to step up and do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I say, all right, well, I'll, I'll start making small payments mm-hmm. to clear my name and clear the debt. Yeah, so sometimes it can be a, a smart move. Now, first off, anything you do with a collection agency, you want to get it in writing. So if you think a collector has made some sweetheart deal with you saying, oh, you owe 5000 but give me 1250 tomorrow and we'll call it a day, make sure you've got everything in writing. This will be the time to invest a little bit of money with a legal counsel to just to make sure you're getting a full and final settlement. I've heard too many times when people have thought they've made a deal with a collection agent, they've sent the money through thinking it's full and final settlement, and the collection agent has said, well, thanks very much, but where's the other 75%? 
consent. Right. So any payments that you do make, make sure they're documented. But you're hitting on a really great point there, Elaine, um, in that sometimes collection agents, so there's often a good cop, bad cop situation. And, you know, obviously the bad cop is you're a very bad person, I'm going to take you to court, so on and so forth, really being aggressive. But sometimes the good cop is, you know, we understand things are difficult, you know, we want to work with you. If you'll start making some good faith payments, you know, even 10 or 25 or $50 a month, that'll show us that you want to work with us and we can tell the bank, hey, you're still a good client and everyone will be happy here. So sounds really positive, right? Yeah, it does. But you got to realize that you might actually be doing yourself a world of harm by doing that. Because, because it'll never end. It'll never end. <laughs> never end. Yeah, we've talked a number of times. I know our loyal listeners would know there's a statute of limitations on debts in BC. Yeah. And just for anyone who's not aware, the statute of limitations means that if you owe somebody money and you're not able to pay them, if two years goes by between your last payment um, and they haven't taken any legal action against you, they can never again take legal action against you. It's statute barred. Now, what happens is quite often you'll be a year and 10 months or a year and 11 months, all the bad cop will stop and the good cop will phone you up and say, hey, you know what, I'd love to get some partial payments here, let's work together, let's get your credit back on track, all these things like that. You make a single payment, even if it's $5, you've just reset that clock back to two years. So what's the best advice in that situation? I mean, I, I guess it depends on, on your own personal situation, but I think about... Um, you know, two years, could I handle, you know, just letting this ride for a couple of years? Maybe, right? Yeah, it's, it, everyone's situation is different. You know, I've actually been called by a collection agent once, and I, I remember these phone calls, and I remember they impacted me pretty emotionally as well. And this was, I had a rental car, we had, you know, a little fender bender, and the insurance was covering it, but there was a delay in when the insurance paid out. I couldn't get that story out of my mouth in, in 10 seconds before the gentleman and I remember. I had to refer to him as Mr. whatever his last name was, but I was Blair. So, Blair, you need to do this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, Mr. And I was, I was suddenly in, the, in this power <laughs> dynamic. Uh, and I just thought, how did this guy flip it so completely? Yeah. And it's really not a fair fight. So okay. my advice in general is just don't engage. Do so, not engage. Yeah, if someone's calling you, realize you're probably not going to have anything good to say to them. If you could pay the debt, you would have paid it already. You would have paid it to the bank. They're obviously sending you these letters already, and you would have paid it if you could. What's to be gained by you having a very distressing conversation with a collector where they're going to threaten things that they're probably not going to follow through on, but you're not going to sleep very well after that, maybe for weeks or months after that, because you just don't know. Okay, now here's kind of a random question. What if I then went to the bank and said, look, I'm really sorry, this is my situation, and, and dealt directly with them? Are they going to be open to that? or not open to that? Well, I definitely encourage people to try that. The first step we ask people to do is, you know, try to go to your lender and see if they will work with you. Okay. You know, if it's a case, hey, you're in between jobs for three months, you know you'll be able to make payments again, you might have a great discussion with a bank teller, with a manager or something. You might They might get you off of the collector or agree to work with you because they know the problem's going to get solved eventually. Okay. Now, if it's a case you know you're not going to be able to make good on this debt, pay it all off with interest, the bank's not going to be able to do a whole lot for you. The okay. person that's, that's going to be seeing you, usually the tools that they have is, do you need more credit or do you need a little bit of a lower interest rate um, but in terms of settling the debt for less than what you owe usually banks just don't get into that business now I know the best thing to do and I don't mean to say oh you know we need this is where we talk about coming to see you but I mean that just seems like the most logical thing to do 
It absolutely is, Elaine, because, you know, we're unbiased. So I'm an independent officer of the court. My job is to give independent views on, you know, the law and what protects you. And one thing that I can tell you that other people won't even tell you this exists is in the province of BC, you can say, I don't consent to collection phone calls, and they have to respect that. They have to stop calling you. So I have people come into my office, and it, it just makes their day, their life, their afternoon, whatever, when I can say, here's a letter. This is a legal letter. The next collector that calls you, you get these particulars. You don't engage. You say, I'm sending you a legal letter. I need this information and then you document that you've sent that letter when they continue to call or if they continue to call then you complain to consumer protection bc they will find them they will shut them down eventually so there are things you can do in bc that people won't make you aware of the collector is never going to tell you by the way you don't have to take this call you can say no (laughs) Um, but if you come and see a trustee we'll give you all the straight facts okay so that's a really good place to start is get that off your back off your daily routine listening to that barrage and then and, and then take the next steps, right? Sit down with you and figure out, okay, what do you owe? How did you get to this place? What can we do? How can we figure this out? What's the best step to take now? Yeah, yeah. even just sending that letter, you'd be amazed how much easier it is to deal with something that, you know, written in front of you. You know, you can see the words on the page and what they'll write on a page is a lot different than you being in a very hostile, talking down conversation where the people are threatening things that they would never write down. So stop the calls, send the letter, don't engage and get the right help when you need it. Yeah, because we we know the uh, uh, getting rid of the stress or the high stress in any situation. I mean, you can start to think a little more clearly and really look at the situation and and get the help that you need to uh, to move forward. Listen, if any of this information is resonating with you and and you think that uh, uh, you want to take some steps but you don't know how, go see Blair. Any of his uh, they've got offices all over British Columbia, which is lovely and uh, very easy to get a hold of. I'll give you their one eight hundred number one eight hundred. 661-3030. Uh, check out their website, sands-trustee.com. I tell you, there's so much good information written there that will they'll write, uh, you know, frequently asked questions. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's... Pages and pages. It yeah. is, but it's awesome because, you know, you, you will see yourself in, in something, in one place on the website as well. Uh, also, the, the phone number to get that uh, free consultation, make an appointment for a free consultation and reach an office near you. We'll be back with more right after after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Budgets, budgets, budgets. I know they're the most important thing to do, uh, sometimes the hardest thing to do for people, especially when it comes to a household budget. Uh, but I would think that it's probably a pretty good place to start, Blair, if you're, if you can't figure out where all your money's going each month. Yeah, you know, we often say at Sands and Associates, it's the foundation of having control over your finances. And, you know, a budget's a plan, it's a story, you know, it's a goal, and it's the old adage, if you don't know where you're going, well, any path is going to get you there. So it's really difficult for you to achieve financial goals unless you're budgeting each month, you know, you're, you're tracking your spending, uh, and you're seeing the insights that, you know, otherwise would just be missed in the, in the hustle and bustle of everyday life, of paying electronically for things, um, you know, of regular subscriptions 
on your credit cards. Really difficult to monitor everything unless you do take a bud or unless you do make a budget. Uh, it's really one of the foundations of when we work with somebody uh, in either a bankruptcy or a proposal. The government mandates that they attend two financial counseling sessions. Uh, one of them is focused on credit rebuilding, but the other is very focused on budgeting of trying to understand where does the money come from, where does it go each month, what are the gaps, what are the adjustments, and a lot of people find even after they finish the bankruptcy or a proposal, you know, where they're not mandated to keep a budget, they still continue with that behavior, whether it's on an app or a spreadsheet or just, you know, a sheet of paper on a monthly basis, because it's just good financial hygiene. It just helps to make sure you're going to stay out of trouble. And I just want to throw in here, too, you know, uh, being able to manage money or, or have good financial skills is not something that we automatically know. And we even get very little. I mean, I don't know what today uh, the situation is, but in terms of information on education on it, uh, we didn't we didn't all get that information at the start. Yeah, I don't think anybody here would, or anybody who's listening would say, hey, you know, I got a really great grounding of financial literacy when I went to school. You know, we learned quadratic equations and calculus, but we didn't learn how a mortgage works, how a credit card works, and to stay the heck away from payday loans. Um, all those things I think would be a little more valuable, not to say let's get rid of algebra or calculus, uh, but there does need to be an ad uh, to think what, what's taught in school to give people a good foundation. You know, that being said, it's really not that complicated at the end of the day. You know, it's not as simple as spend less than you make, but it's not much more difficult than that. It's spend less than what you make, track your spending, and really look out for some pitfalls and be ready to make adjustments so that you can change course if, if circumstances change. Yeah, a segment's really about troubleshooting, uh, tips for troubleshooting your household budget. So I guess the first one is, uh, what, you know, what about minimum payments? Because that seems to be the first thing that people are gravitate, gravitate towards. Yeah, so what, when we uh, survey our client base every year, one of the top warning signs of how people knew their debts were becoming a problem is that they were only able to make minimum payments. So if you're putting your budget together and, you know, your budget, you got room for all of your minimum payments and it looks like a balanced budget and that's a very successful thing, it's not. You've got to realize that making minimum payments is not going to get you out of debt. It's not designed to do that. In some ways, it's designed to maximize the amount of time that you're in debt and the amount of interest you're eventually going to pay. So one of the big pitfalls is when people put a budget together, you've got to have a budget that results in you actually paying down your debt rather than just making the minimum payments each month. Um, you know, we talk a lot about $6,000 of debt can be 40 years, uh, but I've seen people where their credit card statements say, you know, 150 years at minimum payments. And I wonder, you know, who signs off on a statement that's so absurd, um, but you've really got to understand a minimum payment is not going to get you there. Have you got, and I'm asking you this off the cuff here, is there a bit of a formula that you, that a, a regular person could kind of apply to their uh, credit card debt, for example, to figure out the best, the amount to pay off each month, or, or does it take a lot more than just that? No, it's relatively straightforward. You know, we, we generally say use the rule of 60, which means take all of your total unsecured debt, so not your mortgage, not your car loan, but all the other debt that's hanging around, and divide that by 60 and look at that payment. So if it's $30,000, divide that by 60, that's $500 in a month. Are you able to make that payment on your debt? And if you're not, uh, you've got to realize you're just hurtling towards paying a whole lot more interest, being in debt for a long period of time, because where that comes from is if you were to do a consumer proposal, the maximum term you're going to pay is 60 months, and you're probably going to pay a whole lot less than the principal. So if it comes back, oh, wow, I can afford $200 and not $500. Well, if you want to be out of debt inside of five years, you need to do a consumer proposal or something different. You know, you're not going to be able to get out of it just by making those minimum payments. So I think that, that's a good rule of thumb. You know, anytime you're just paying the minimums, that to me, that's a warning sign. 
Okay, fair enough. Um, what about uh, flexibility in your budget? Uh, should you have some or no, you shouldn't? Well, I think it's essential to have some flexibility because a budget's got to be something that, you know, you're going to see a benefit from. It's not just going to be an obligation, something that, you know, you scrunch your face up and grit your teeth and say, okay, it's budget time this month. So it's kind of like too strict of a diet. You know, you might stick with it for a week or two or a month or two with a budget, but eventually you're going to rebel against it and say, well, I've got to enjoy life a little bit. So, you know, maybe it's 5% of your income. You know, you haven't allocated that, and that's just going to be for miscellaneous. You know, maybe there's something, an impulse buy that's going to make you happy, um, you know, Maybe it's something that you want to save for. You can put that money away. But having some slack in your budget is absolutely essential. If you've already planned how you're going to spend every penny in that month uh, and there's no ability to adjust, um, again, you're going to feel pretty despondent when your budget gets broken by some of the, you know, the unexpected things that do happen in our lives. Now, this, now this one, I'm not sure how, what it means, Blair. You've said spending only once and well. How, how could you spend more than once? Well, you'd be amazed. Um, so when people get their tax refund, um, you know, first off, you file your taxes and you say, okay, here's the assessment. I'm going to get this money back. And then sometimes people go and spend that refund. Um, and then the check comes in and they say, oh, well, now I've got this check again. I'm going to go and spend that refund. So if there's a windfall, ah. you really, exactly, you really have to be careful that the windfall, you don't spend more than that and you do only spend it once and really consider spending it very wisely. So, you know, consider, do you have the emergency savings account? Do you have the three to six months of expenses to get you through a really tough time? Are you working towards your financial goals, you know, putting money into your RRSPs or your TFSA? That's something that can bring you joy every month when you see those statements, as opposed to spending it on something consumable that's going to be gone maybe before you know it, uh, and then you'll feel a little bit sad. Oh, I had this windfall, but now it's gone. Um, so do be careful any windfalls. You spend them again only once and think about a wise way to spend them. See, that, see, that's one of the advantages of talking to somebody like you, a licensed insolvency trustee from Sands & Associates that gives me so much good information that I wouldn't necessarily know otherwise. Not everybody's going to tell me those kinds of things, even though it's super vital information. So if you want to take some steps, want to take that first step towards uh, living that debt-free life, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030. Um, what about saving money, Blair? That's got to be an important aspect to it as well. Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. I think where a lot of budgets really break down is they don't plan for annual costs. So these are the things that don't happen every month, but they do happen every year. So, you know, it might be an insurance renewal that you have to pay up front, maybe for your home insurance or property taxes, for example. It could be vehicle maintenance. It could be vet expenses, uh, professional dues. There's a number of things. They're going to come, you know, as lump sums due in the moment. And if you haven't put that away, if you haven't said, well, you know, over a course of the year, it's going to cost me $250 for my dog or cat. If you're not putting away the $20 a month, well, suddenly you've got a $250 gap in your budget that month, and that can just snowball if you have to borrow the money to, to, you know, pay, to pay that bill in the short term. So make sure you're looking at your annual costs um, and you're amortizing those over time. Um, I think another really good tool when it comes to saving is to use different accounts. Um, so you know, not to have everything go through your daily checking account because it can be tough to keep track. And if you're just saying, I'm going to save what's left over at the end of the month, there's almost never something left over at the end of the month to save save, but if you've got an automatic transfer of savings, you know, even if it's, say, 20 or $50 in a week or a month, um, you know, that can add up quicker than you think. The time's going to pass and that number's going to grow. Um, so having something that's automatic into a separate account is a really important thing to do. Excellent. And in closing, um, I know that you've, you've listed some areas to watch out for as far as being able to track your budgeting progress. 
just going to say, you know, sometimes an app is great, Mint is excellent, but even just writing things down on a sheet of paper or a spreadsheet, it's going to get you there as well. Excellent. Uh, and for more information, give them a call. I'll give them the, give you the phone number, 1-800-661-3030, to get that first consultation, uh, as well as to find an office near you, Sands & Associates, located all over British Columbia. Or if you'd like to go to their website, sands-trustee.com, chock-a-block full of good information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. On the line with us is Ian Fultz. Uh, and Ian uh, was a, a client of Sands & Associates, which is uh, terrific in that he has uh, volunteered to share his story uh, so that you know we're, that Sands & Associates helps real people with real situations uh, get out of and, and get out of the bad situation. So, Ian, first of all, just thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Really great. So, I guess the first question to get you started, can you tell us about the situation uh, that you were in that brought you to Sands & Associates? Well, I had filed a bankruptcy way back in 2006, and I, seven years later, I got out of that, no problems, 2013, all good to go. Credit is, is good. I've got a decent job. Things are going well. I'm working in voiceover. I'm working on my projects. And then all of a sudden, the job that I had that was giving me the money to do the stuff I needed to do, well, suddenly that dried up. Oh, no. Hours were gone. And I, of course, and again, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I did it again. I didn't save enough money mm-hmm. to prepare for such a, a, a thing. And then the creditors started calling. And then I got letters from the lawyers and that was the worst one that's what kind of like made me stress out yeah i wonder Ian, can you go into a little bit bit of detail that so what what was that like you know that the letters from the creditors and and the phone calls were they calling you know just a couple times a day or was it you know pretty well incessant were they saying reasonable things or kind of going beyond the pale yeah that, there are so many things you said there that <laughs> that's true what yeah. happened for of course i'm getting calls daily right in the morning in the afternoon at night, I'm trying to audition for voiceover, and suddenly I, the phone rings. And I'm like, oh. And I'm trying to do this on my own. Like, I'm thinking I can do this. If I can get, if I can get this gig, or if I can get that gig, or if I, you know, maybe get another job. You know, this one I'm not getting enough hours on. And I thought I could do it on my own. And that, the moment I got the letter from the lawyers about the credit card, mm. I went, okay, this is, this is too much. And then I started researching. One of the things... Uh, for me, is is I don't know everything, but Google mm-hmm. can help, and <laughs> yep. and that's when I discovered consumer proposals. You just need to be careful if you've got a medical problem, because everything you Google with regards to your health <laughs> seems seems to lead with you're going to be gone in a couple of days. But but yeah, yeah you, much. but you're right for, from a financial point of view. Yeah, so many of our clients they come in and they've done so much background research. You know, they're they're almost an expert at, to the point where they come in and say, you know, I want a consumer proposal. And I know all this this about the process. So was was that your situation too? You had started to figure out about this solution. Yeah, because I was first thinking, oh, God, I have to go bankrupt again. And then when I looked into it, the the numbers just were like, oh, no, that's because I had previously gone bankrupt because I lost my job and, and lost my house and everything. Mm. Uh, it, and I thought, okay, I, I cleaned myself up. Oh, no, this is even worse. This is like five times worse. 
Hmm. And I was, I didn't know what to do. And then I heard consumer proposal and I got into that and like, Oh, well, you know, I, I, I might qualify for this. And it was such a, um, an uplifting weight off my shoulders when I went into the office mm-hmm. and they said to me, okay, yeah, yeah, this is it. When I did the numbers, I thought it was going to be X amount. It was less than the X amount. And I was like, wow. And then I got to call the lawyers that had sent me the letter. <laughs> <laughs> That's usually my job, yeah. Ian. <laughs> Talk to them. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, and and that's that's great, Ian. So yeah, we'll, we'll go a little bit bit slow in a couple of things that you said there, but yeah, you know, the, the calling the lawyers, I can imagine you took some satisfaction out of that. And like you said, you say talk to Sands because they're they're involved, and that's exactly what our clients get to do. So I notify everybody that somebody owes money to. Um, but yeah, if they call again, or if you wanted to call them yourself as you did, that's fine too. You can say I'm fully protected and and talk to my trustee. Um, and you yeah. also hit on Ian that yeah, if there has been a previous bankruptcy, um, the system is punitive, and I don't necessarily agree with it. In fact, I think it is a, a pretty tough, tough punitive situation um, because if you had filed a first bankruptcy, it might have been over in nine months. Um, a second bankruptcy, the shortest that could ever be is two years, twenty-four months, and in most cases, it's thirty-six months. So that's you know four that's times. That's exactly as long. what I was looking at. Yeah, so nine months to thirty-six months, um, and the the bigger thing too, and I have a lot of people really hit on this when they're deciding, you know, do I do bankruptcy again or do I do a consumer proposal? Is the credit rating impact? It's fourteen years if it's a second time bankruptcy. Yeah, that was that's another factor too. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And really affects the credit ring. And what, what really shocked me uh, is, is all the mistakes that I've made over the last 25 years have really impacted not only my, my credit, but my ability to get a job even. Mm. Um, one time when I was in the military, uh, I lost uh, my credit rating because I didn't pay a credit card in time. And because of that, I was being uh, audited for my top secret clearance. Right. And the next thing you know, they're like, yeah, we, uh, we need you to make sure this thing is paid off. Otherwise, you're not getting your top secret clearance as a radio operator in the military. I was like, whoa, okay. Wow. And this was just for an unpaid credit card bill or cell phone bill or something like that, right? Yeah. It can affect you. Yeah. Huge. One of the things... like, Yeah, keep going, Ian. Sorry. Yeah. So one of the major things, uh, the funniest thing was, after I got the letter from the lawyers, after I talked to Sands & Associates, after I called those lawyers to let them know what's going on, I got another letter from them. Hey, just just pay us half, and we'll be, we'll be fine. And I'm oh, isn't that interesting? Hey, mm-hmm. wow. Um, so what did you, so what did you do then? Did you let Sands and Associates do the next correspondence with the lawyers, or did you? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the next thing. It had to be done that way because, as far as I was concerned, well, now they're they're representing all the creditors, not just that one credit card. Right. All the creditors that I had debts with, and then I work through them to get the, to to solve the issues. And another interesting thing that happened with my particular case, one of them declined, mm-hmm. and because of that, well, a year later, I'm like, I'm still getting phone calls from that one one person. I'm like, what's, what's going on? And then I found out that they had declined. So I'm like, I call them up. I'm like, sorry guys, you, you had your chance. Mm-hmm. Bye. You know, yeah. Yeah, they could get the money on, on their own. Ian is super involved in his process, but, n- but not everybody gets as involved as Ian does in, in their process and in a consumer proposal process. Do they Blair? 
No, I'd, I'd say there, there's definitely a mix. You know, some of my clients, again, they're, they know exactly what they want when they come in the door. They've almost organized the proposal for themselves. And then, yeah, anybody that calls them, they're fine to, you know, have a quick chat with. Um, but yeah, most of the time, that's all of our job. So, um, Ian, when you hit on that one person said no to the proposal, I love that as the power of the proposal is all I need is 50% by dollar value of the creditors to say yes. And as soon as we get that, it doesn't matter if it's the government that said no, if it's, you know, uh, a family debt, if it's anybody else, as long as I've got 50% of your creditors that say yes, you don't have to deal with that debt at all. It's legally bound as part of the proposal. Um, so I know when you spoke to them and they, and they kept calling, they, they eventually had to stop. And, you know, I get calls regularly, oh, this collector won't back off. I'm like, well, you give me his name and his phone number and I'm going to stop it within the day because this is violating federal law. There's no gray area here. They're not allowed to call once a proposal has been filed. And I want to add, too, uh, and then we'll get back to your story, Ian, um, the legally bound part. Now, you say that, and you, Blair, and you say it so easily, it just kind of rolls out. Mm-hmm. But that's the, the most significant piece about dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee is that, that you guys are federally regulated and you're, you're given this power and permission to do this work on behalf of a client and people have to pay attention to that. Yeah. No, that's well said, Elaine. Yeah, Ian, I wonder if you're comfortable sharing any, you know, whether it's the percentage of debt that you paid back or like the monthly payment you were doing in the proposal compared to what they wanted you to pay in all of your minimum payments. Because usually I find that that's a pretty positive moment in the meeting with with someone who comes in to see me if they don't know what a proposal payment is going to be. And I say, well, you know, you're probably paying $1,000 just in interest. Your proposal payment can be $200 or $250. Um, You know, sometimes they come across the table, they're, they're so happy. So I wonder what was that situation like for you? What were the numbers like if you're comfortable to give us a ballpark? Well, I am a numbers man. I love numbers. <laughs> yep. Numbers are awesome. Yep. And, no, and the, the relief, the, sh- the shock, okay, well, at first I did the numbers myself, and I figured, oh, okay, I'll reduce my, my debt payments from 600 a month to 250 mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, that's, that's pretty good. Uh, the main reason why is like, I, I could have kept going if I kept having the right income. But mm-hmm. since I lost all that income, it was just, it, I, there's no, nothing else I could do. I had to do this. In fact, when I approached Sands & Associates, I was just getting a job uh, recently with uh, Coca-Cola. And if it wasn't for me getting that job, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in today. Mm-hmm. And the numbers are pretty simple. 600 bucks a month down to 175. Wow. And that's that's it for the, and I'm almost done. I got like two years, less than two years to go. And Mm -hmm. I'm putting, I'm actually putting more than 175 down. That's another thing. You can add more money. If you got the money, you can put it more onto it and get this thing done quicker. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that's a great point, Ian. I'd say the majority of my clients, you know, a proposal, we might set it for five years, but I have people coming in all the time saying I was able to work extra shifts or I got a tax refund or something, and they either put down extra payments to take a break or they just try to finish it off sooner because then you can rebuild your credit more quickly. But yeah, looking at, you said, I think over $600 a month, the minimum payments and the proposal at 175 yeah, that's right on that, you know, usually right around a third or so. It, it really is. Those are good numbers. So, Ian. Yeah, and I was, yes. Yeah, no, go ahead. Sorry. And the the, the big the, the biggest thing was the weight off the shoulders. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the number one I cannot forget this is the lawyers sending me that letter. That scared me. Like whoa, they're really pushing, and I, I need to I need to solve this on my end. And the only way I could find out was was through consumer proposal. So Ian, at the end, so so now that you're in this place of uh, paying paying 
paying this debt with the consumer proposal. What has changed for you? Because you've sort of been in two situations now. How have you changed your attitude or are you doing things differently when it comes to your finances? And before you answer that question, I just want to add, you know, when you, when we started talking to you, you said, you know, I didn't have enough money saved in order to, um, cushion myself because I lost this job. Uh, so many people, are in the exact same position as you. And so I, I just don't want you to feel bad for one second because, oh my gosh, uh, the, the numbers of people who are in the exact same position as you that don't have that safety net or that piggy bank full to carry them over for a few months is enormous. So I, I wanted to say that. But, but go back to the uh, attitudes and things. How are you looking at things differently or what are you doing differently now? Well, one of the biggest things is budgeting myself. So I figured out exactly how much I need to uh, pay out in a month, and I'm making sure I'm, I'm working the hours that I need, and I'm getting the, the, the gigs that I luckily can get for voiceover. Uh, one of the big ones was uh, I got a, an anime gig. I was working on a Japanese anime, and I took all that money and I put it aside. It, I don't touch right. it. <laughs> it's not <Right>. mine. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's part of my savings. And then I start paying myself from the, the work that I'm doing now. I give myself 10% of my net income every two weeks, and I throw that in another account I can't, I can't touch unless I absolutely need it. And that's the biggest change in my life, is being able to pay myself first, then pay everybody else. Nice. Ian, we're going to wrap up right now. I just want to say if any of this information is resonating with, with our listener uh, and you're thinking, I know somebody, or maybe maybe you're hearing your, your own situation in Ian's, uh, go to Sands and Associates, their website. It's sands-trustee.com. And I'll tell you why their website, because it's just chock full of so much good information. Or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030, and get that free consultation and to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment's called Government Debt Forgiveness. And I, I, the first thing when I read this, I thought, okay, is there such a thing? And in fact, there is. And, and Blair's uh, the perfect guy to give us sort of a basic overview of some common government debts that can be forgiven or consolidated or reduced. Uh, but the key here is you want to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee to do that work. Am I right, Blair? I think I am, right? You're absolutely correct, Elaine. Folks take nothing else away from this segment, just that idea that there is hope, there is opportunity, you know, tax debts, student Mm -hmm. loans, all these other things we're going to talk about, none of them have to be life sentences. And, you know, we get a lot of our news from down south where they've exempted tax debt and student loans specifically. If you go bankrupt, you're going to owe those uh, even after the bankruptcy. Um, But in Canada, government debts can be dealt with, but you've got to deal with a licensed insolvency trustee. You've got to understand all the facts about them. Um, And I'm excited for this segment because we're going to go through a bunch of different categories uh, of government debt and tell you how each one would be treated if you do need to restructure them. Um, But we know it's a scary thing when you owe the government money. Uh, We know, you know, they've got more collection arms, uh, more collection activities that they can do almost without warning. So uh, it's no picnic when you're in debt to the government, but definitely take hope based on today's segments that there are solutions available. Now, I'm sure that there's one uh, one that's more common, one government debt that's more common than the other. Which one is it? 
Well, absolutely, that's tax debt. So you can imagine all of our friends at, at CRA, and I know they're, they're you know, good people trying to do a tough job there, uh, but when you get behind with a tax man or a tax woman, it can be very difficult to get out from under that burden because there's interest, there's penalties, uh, and then what happens when you owe CRA is if you're not making the payments that they want you to make, which is usually payment in full within six months of when they assess a balance, you know, they can start aggressive collection activities virtually overnight. Um, they can start seizing wages, usually up to 30%. They can even seize pensions, which I was quite surprised to see, but it does happen. Um, you know, they can also put liens on assets. And, you know, usually they won't do that unless it's a pretty severe situation. But it's also the case with some debts, you can kind of wait them out. You can say, okay, well, unless they sue me, you know, it's not going to really impact my life too much. But the government doesn't have to sue you. They can do these things without a court action. And there's no expiry. There's no statute of limitations on government debt. So if you owe the government money for income taxes, for GST, for corporate tax, um, if you've got an issue with CRA, that's when you'd want to start dealing with the trustee. um, Because what we can do immediately is we can stop all of the interest, we can stop any of the wage garnishments, we can stop any of the asset seizures and prevent them from starting again as long as you're under the protection of of a trustee. And there's a couple remedies you can use to reduce or eliminate that debt as well. Okay, do you want to mention those right now or should we move on to the next one? Well, let's talk a little bit. So, yeah, if you owe government debt, uh, again, for income taxes, we talked GST and corporate tax, the two ways you can restructure those are either through a personal bankruptcy. And, again, a lot of people think if you go bankrupt, you still owe the government money. That's absolutely not the case. If you're under $200,000 of tax debt, which, believe it or not, I see a bunch of people who are over that, uh, but under $200,000 of tax debt, uh, it's pretty well a foregone conclusion that if you successfully complete your personal bankruptcy, the tax debt will be discharged. If it's over $200,000, it's still highly likely you're not going to have to owe that tax debt in the future, but there is going to be a court hearing where the judge is going to want to hear, well, how did the tax debt arise and what steps have you taken to deal with it? But as long as you know you face things honestly, you're not going to have any issues there. And if it's a situation where you can afford to make a reduced payment to CRA, but it's just the interest is killing you, the penalties, and the total amount is too high, a consumer proposal can absolutely consolidate, reduce all of your debts, which could include CRA as well. So you can avoid bankruptcy, pay no interest and pay back what you can afford on the tax debt, which is often in the range of, you know, maybe 25 to 50 percent of the amount outstanding. Got it. I was uh, I'm always intrigued when this comes up because I never think about this as being a government, uh, a government debt. But the medical services plan debt, how does that work for people or against them? Yeah, so that's another government debt. And, you know, great thing in, in B.C. as of January 1st, 2020, all MSP premiums were eliminated. But if you had an unpaid balance, if you hadn't paid for a period of a few years, um, that still remains payable. And all of those strict government collection activities that I talked about, you know, you could still be subject to those. Now, what's really important is sometimes people have an MSP debt assessed against them because they haven't filed their taxes for a number of years. And once they file their taxes, the Uh government will see they were actually low income and the retroactive premium assistance program will will start to kick in. So if you're facing an MSP debt, first make sure your taxes are, are filed up to date. But second, understand you have complete options uh, to deal with MSP debt the same as every other government debt as well. See, and that's, again, uh, really the, the best reason or one of the many re- good reasons to 
to deal with, to go and see a licensed insolvency trustee like Blair Manton at Sands and Associates, because they have all this knowledge, this base of knowledge, and they have no personal investment in it other than making sure that you know that you have everything you could possibly need to know in order to go forward and to deal with this debt, whether it be government debt or and all the different facets of government debt or any kind of debt. So I, I just wanted to throw that in. So what other... Um, uh, what can you tell us about dealing with debts for government benefit programs, uh, be, uh, government benefits or programs, Blair? How does that yeah, work? So, well, if people, a lot of people have a fear that if they restructure the government debt, they might not be eligible for future government benefits. Um, you know, maybe they depend on a disability benefit or a social assistance, and they're just worried, oh, my God, if I write off this tax debt, is the government going to say, oh, we're not going to send you any more money in the future? Um, and that's an unfounded fear. So just because you had to file a bankruptcy or a proposal, you're protected. You can't be discriminated against. If you're entitled to government benefits, you would continue to get those going forward. And a lot of the times, uh, there's an incredible breathe of, uh, breathing of a sigh of relief because someone might have had their government pensions being seized partly by CRA or something like that. And when they file a bankruptcy or a proposal, suddenly they start to get the full pension as, again because the trustee is able to lift that seizure. So don't be concerned about being ineligible in the future if you've got to restructure your debts in the short term. Now, I know there's a couple other types of debts. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, you go finish up. Finish the thought, oh. please. Thank you. I was going to say there's a couple other debts that, you know, sometimes we run into, and these are a little bit less common than the two that we've talked about, um, but EI overpayment. So that's something where if you're on EI and maybe there was an application error or you failed to report something, you're also earning income and you got overpaid something. Um, that's an amount that can become due and payable and, again, subject to some collection activities. Now, this one can be a little bit of a gray area. I've seen it go in a couple of ways. Uh, if the government takes the view that there was fraud involved, meaning it's crystal clear that, you know, you knew you were earning income, you knew you were getting benefits you weren't entitled to, um, sometimes the government can argue, well, that's a debt that should survive a bankruptcy proceeding. But in the vast majority of cases, if there's an honest um, like explanation of how this overpayment occurred, it is a debt that a trustee can help you deal with. Okay. How about social assistance overpayment? Those generally forgiven in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Okay. And student loans, we know those, lots of people have student loans outstanding. Yeah, student loans is definitely a common one that we see, and there's a couple really important things. Uh, the magic number with student loans is it has to be seven years since you were last a student for you to be able to restructure your student loan in full through either a bankruptcy or a proposal. So the government wants you to make a really good faith effort to earn income to get value from your schooling, but if seven years have passed since you were last a student, a student loan becomes like every other debt. It can be discharged or written off completely in either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. Uh, there's a provision in the law that if it's been more than five years, so not quite seven, but more than five, um, there is still a possibility of you getting your student loan um, discharged in full, but you have to make an extra court application after you've finished either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Um, so quite often I see people where it's been, you know, six and a quarter years or six and a half years, and I say, well, waiting that extra six or nine months, that's going to be night and day to you having all of your problems solved from a financial point of view uh, or having that student loan come out the other side, you still owe the balance. So uh, definitely the seven-year rule is what's important. But again, take hope that it's not a 70-year rule. Uh, it's a reasonable amount of time uh, where the government just wants to see, are you going to be able to get value from this student debt? And if not, they would allow it to be discharged as well. Good. And I don't want to finish off this segment without mentioning ICBC debt for folks. 
Yeah, and I know we were just bumping up on time, but ICBC debt in almost all cases would be forgiven under either a bankruptcy or a proposal. Uh, your trustee will contact ICBC, make sure they understand the substance of the debt. And it's only if there's alleged fraud, if there's intentionally inflicted bodily harm or wrongful death, that's when you might have an issue. Otherwise, just about every ICBC debt can be dealt with by a trustee. Great. And for information on any of these things in more depth, if you're not ready to talk to somebody yet, go to the website, sands-trustee.com. It's chock block full of great resources for you. Or better yet, give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 and get that first consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. (laughs) For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.